Well, I, I greatly appreciate Marcelo's patience in waiting for that book. The only concern I had is I noticed a whole thing of post-it notes in his pocket. And, uh, <laughs> well, we are continuing our series in Exodus. We've been immersed in this wonderful book for, I think, now three months. And it has been a delight but I want, I want to make a, a comment prior to our passage this morning. The people of Israel, the, the folks in Exodus and us, are separated by thousands of years. Even still, that we have a bridge between us and them. And that, that bridge is not just our humanity, that, that they are people just like us. Um, but that, that bridge is, is even closer um, because we are people like them. And what they walk through and what they feel and what they experience and what they are challenged by, that's, that's us too. The, the wonderful difference between us and them is the cross that we have, have we've been privileged to live on this side of the cross, whereas they lived prior to the cross. But we can identify with these people, and as we study this passage this morning, as we as we dive in here, my my appeal is just. Put yourselves in these people's shoes. Live, live where they live. Feel what they feel because we are like them and they are like us. We have much to, to learn. Let's, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to speak to us. You are faithful to care for us through the word that you have given. And Lord, you... You want to transform us. You are transforming us through the work of your spirit. And so, Lord, as we, as we read this passage this morning, as we study this passage, as we consider this passage, we ask that you would renew and refresh our minds. And, Lord, we would walk away uh, closer to you than when we came in here this morning. Lord, help us to draw near to you because there are many things that separate us from you at times. And Lord, we, we acknowledge that now and we pray, draw us near to yourself in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after three months of God leading Israel through the wilderness, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai. Uh, Starting in chapter 19, which is where we will be this morning, beginning in verses 1 and 2, on the third moon, the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So three months have passed by. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, here is, they, they have been in the wilderness of Shur. They have been in the wilderness again and again, and now God has them in the wilderness of Sinai. So they, they arrive in the, into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and then they encamped in the wilderness. 
Now, you get the idea of where they are. They are in the wilderness. So much hasn't changed with respect to Israel's circumstances. They have, they have continued to be in the wilderness. And in Exodus 3, 1 through uh, 12, we, we read of the story of Moses and the burning bush. We see that that wilderness where, where Moses went up on what is called Mount Horeb there, but is the same as Mount Sinai. Moses ha- came to that wilderness in the Sinai, that area, that mountain. This is where they are now. This is where Israel has come. And they are, they are here for a very specific purpose. God, God told Moses, if you remember, God told Moses in chapter three at the burning bush that he would lead God's people to this very mountain for this express purpose of worshiping him. Moses is speaking to God in chapter three and the Lord says, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. They, their lives are going to be different again. And again, if you remember early on in, in the chapters of Exodus, where Moses is, is dealing with Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh again and again, let God's people go. Let my people go so that they can worship the Lord. So they can go and worship the Lord. And now it has finally come to pass in this chapter at Mount Sinai. They come there. Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So they arrive at Mount Sinai and Moses immediately makes his way up to God. Now, Israel is still in the wilderness. Imagine, imagine this three month journey and the challenges they faced. I mean, desert heat, arid land, no drinking water twice no food and enemies who attack them. And now they arrive, they arrive at their new destination, but it's still wilderness. It's still in the middle of nowhere. They have come to the pinnacle of nowhere at Mount Sinai. There is, there is nothing there. There are no stores. There are no restaurants. There's nothing to buy. There's nothing to see. The manna and the water problems certainly have been solved, but there's nothing beyond that. It is just Wilderness and, and what they don't realize and they will soon realize is that they're going to be here for another 10 months. Wilderness journeys sometimes take a long, long time. And as Christians, we can often feel like we are in the wilderness and we have been there long enough and we plead with God, but God has something for us. So, They arrive at Mount Sinai. Now, the arrival at Mount Sinai does not mark the beginning, but the deepening of the next stage of God's covenant relationship with his people. And as we will see next week, as we begin chapter 20, and we begin walking through the Ten Commandments, God is deepening his 
covenant relationship with these, with these people. Mount Sinai is a very special place. Here is the place that God continues to keep his promise to Abraham, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the place where he's going to meet his people. It's a place where he's going to speak directly to his people. It's the place where he's going to teach him what it means to worship him, what it means to live for God, what it means to be the people of God. God has transformed these people from slaves to his children. And he is now going to change even more their lives. Up to this point, Exodus has shown us again and again um, how the people of Israel are being transformed. Um, But there's so much more. Read with me at the opening section. On the third New moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while God went up. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Like a a movie trailer, the opening chapters of Exodus kind of pique our interest in the continuing story of of God's people who are called to, to be worshipers of him, to be followers of him. And in the opening chapter, God highlights his power and his presence in, in some amazing and fantastic scenes. And each scene gives Israel a unique glimpse of, of who this God is as God makes himself known to this new people. He shows Israel his power in plagues and the Red Sea. He displays his mercy in the Passover. He reveals his presence in, in a pillar of cloud and fi- by day and fire by night. He expresses his fatherly care through the provision of water and manna. And he demonstrates his protection in the defeat of the Amalekites. But a movie trailer isn't the movie. And how many times have you watched a movie, a movie trailer, and you you see it, it comes on television, and it's like, oh, those are the greatest scenes. And then you get to the movie, and those were the only greatest scenes. (laughs) And you think, I've just wasted my money. I have just wasted my money. Now, now, if you're Devin, you waste money by going to a movie, because he literally falls asleep (laughs) in the opening credits. Um, So... So don't ever talk to Devin about movies because he has no idea what you're talking about. How he can stay awake for an Orioles game the whole time, I don't know. Because that's the most boring movie of all. But... uh, (laughs) God has shown us much more in Exodus than a movie trailer. And in Exodus 19, Israel discovers much more of God than they've ever seen before. Something very different than what they've previously experienced with God 
is about to happen here at Mount Sinai. The story of Exodus 19 is perhaps the most important story in the entire book. It's the turning point. It's the, it's the pinnacle of not only what happens in the ensuing chapters in, in the rest of Exodus, but throughout the rest of Scripture, the very thing that Devin was talking about in this book. It's the place where they learn what it means to be a community that worships God. Oh, but there's much more than that. Mount Sinai is not only a place where God has led him. It's a place where God meets with them. And it is the place where he speaks to them and explains his covenant to them and with them. Mount Sinai will set the rest of Israel's history in motion. It's a place where where God's giving of the law reveals humanity's plight. It reveals our sinful plight. Not just their sinful plight, brothers and sisters, our sinful plight. It's the place where God continues to create a covenant people who will worship him. It's also the place where we will see the shadow of God's plan of redemption. And what we can look forward to. And one day that will find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For now, it's the place where Israel learns what the Exodus has ultimately been about. There's, there's much more here than God simply saving a small, unimpressive group of people from a bad situation. Oh, it's much, much more. It, it is, Israel's going to learn some crucial things about what it means to worship the God who has saved them. So what is it that makes Israel's time at Mount Sinai so important? Well, the first is God's covenant. God explains his covenant to his people. Now, it's not that the covenant suddenly begins. The covenant has been here historically from the time of Abraham and and through the patriarchs. But now the explanation of the covenant is becoming more broad. And they're they're getting a clearer picture of, of not just a glimpse, not just a movie trailer, but they're getting an understanding of the covenant up to this point, Israel's understanding of the covenant has been a bit of a mystery, but, but now we see all that God has promised. The covenant is moving forward. But the first question we really need to answer is what is a covenant? It's not typically language we use in our day, except when some homeowners association is making us do something in our yard that we don't want to do. Then we learn about covenant, but this is, This is a different kind of covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement that establishes a relationship between two parties. So with a homeowner's covenant, I've established a relationship with the homeowner's association. I'm one party, they're another party. God uses covenant language so Israel will understand what he's doing. Israel would have understand covenant language because the concept was common in this This culture in ancient Near Eastern culture. Let me give you just a little history lesson. So so don't let me lose you. But powerful kings during this time would conquer weaker countries. And they would make a pact or a covenant with them. Known as a suzerain vassal covenant. 
the suzerain, which was the name back then, would be the king, the powerful king, the conqueror. And the vassal would be the weak person, the one who has been conquered. And this suzerain, this king, would make a covenant with the people. You will now live under my rule. You will do these things. You obey me. And if you do these, everything will be okay. But if you disobey me, then all hell will break loose on you as a country. That was the suzerain vassal. That was the concept of covenant that the people of Israel understood. And so when God is talking about a covenant with them, he, they are understanding God is the king. We are the weaker ones. He is the ruler. But the difference is, is that he is a kind and gracious and benevolent king, a benevolent sovereign. So now they finally arrived at Mount Sinai and God explains in further detail what the covenant means exactly for them. What his covenant, God, the covenant maker, means for them. He starts by telling the people what kind of God he is. And then he tells them what kind of people they are supposed to be. A precious and worshiping people with a special purpose. So look at at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That tells them what kind of God he is. They saw God's power in the plagues. They saw God's protection where they didn't suffer under the plagues as Egypt did. They saw God's mercy and forgiveness as as the, the angel of death passed over at the Passover. They saw his mercy there. They saw God's deliverance. As they come out, they see God's protection as they go through the Red Sea. They see God's care as he provides for them manna and water in the desert. They see who God is. Now, these people were not chosen by God because of some intrinsic value, simply because God chose to love them. And in many ways, this passage, verse 4, is the heart of the Old Testament. It brings to light what the Exodus story has been all about since, since Genesis. God begins assuring Israel of his love for them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on, the, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Look at God's view. You will be my treasured possession. All that God has graciously done for them is because he sees them as his treasured possession. The promises he made to Abraham and Isaac, to Jacob, the promise that he will send a deliverer, the promise that he would loosen all, do all these plagues to loosen Pharaoh's grip on them. He has done it all. This is the kind of God he is. And Israel has watched. He says, you, have your, you yourselves have seen with their own eyes. Israel has seen what God will do for them. Because God loves them and treasures them. And now he says, listen, I, here's what I did. I rescued you. I carried you on eagle's wings. Now, who hasn't seen Lord of the Rings at the end, the very last movie where, where Frodo and Sam have, have left? Was it Mount Doom? Is it? I can't remember. What was the name? Is it Mount Doom? Movie guy. 
Mount Doom. Okay. Um, and, and, and like Hawaii, lava is flowing everywhere and their, their life is, is shortened. And then out of nowhere comes who? The eagles. And they swoop down and they carry them. They carry Sam and Frodo to a safe place. That's the picture. That's the picture that God, like an eagle, has swooped down and carried them out of Egypt, carried them away from the slavery and certain death under a cruel and harsh Pharaoh. What a contrast between one ruler and another. And that is what God is painting here. And to be his treasured people, he simply says, Here's what you do. You fully obey my voice. This is, this is what you do. This is who I am and this is who you are. You're not a number, one, one of a many number of possessions I have. You are my treasured possession. You are royalty to me. You are treasured among all the peoples of the earth. There is no one more treasured than you. And not only are you my treasured possession, but you are also a kingdom of priests. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God, God has set these people apart. And listen, here, here is the beginning of this covenant relationship expanded. And if you turn to first Peter, if you remember in, in first Peter two, Peter saying this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's, that's who Israel is. And that's who we are. This is Israel's calling and it's our calling. Now, through their disobedience, Adam and Eve forfeited these privileges for both themselves and their descendants. They forfeited the privilege of being a treasured possession, although they were always God's treasured possession. They forfeited God's favor. They experienced God's judgment again and again. Here, by obeying God, the Israelites are granted the possibility of fulfilling God's original purpose for humanity. As a holy nation, they will experience the joy and privilege of having God dwell among them and the privilege of God making himself known to them and the privilege of God making himself known through them to other people. If you read the rest of 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As a holy nation, they now experience all of God's blessings. Philip Riken in his commentary said they had been delivered from slavery, but they were vulnerable to starvation and to attack by their enemies. So God lifted them up on his mighty wings, providing them with food and water and victory in battle. The last thing God did for his people was to bring them to his holy mountain where they would worship him in all his majesty. 
The Exodus was not just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It was about getting them close to God. This is always true in salvation. Salvation is never an end in itself. There's always something greater. And that is God himself and our fellowship with him. But it is conditional. It's conditional to their willingness to obey everything God has told them. And unfortunately, the story of Israel's future history reveals that because of repeated disobedience, they never fully experience the promises that God has offered. And of course, Israel responds Moses goes to the people. So Moses, verse 7, came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. There's this picture of Moses going up to the mountain, talking to God. Moses coming down the mountain, talking to the people. Moses going back up to the mountain, talking to God. Moses going back down on the mountain to talk to the people. Back and forth, back and forth. Um, There's a reason for that. Of course, we will obey, but it won't be long before we read again about their fickle commitment. Even still, God is faithful to Israel. Verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the people that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. In other words, God's going to come. He's going to speak to Moses so that the people will understand Moses is my mediator. Moses is my servant. And you will always listen to Moses. I will speak out of the cloud. So that is God's covenant. But what is it that makes Israel's time at Mount Sinai so important? Secondly, it's God's worthiness. He reveals his worthiness because the covenant has created this unique relationship between God and Israel. And it's essential that the people be holy. Now, look at me and with me in verse 10. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with arrows. There were no guns then. Whether beasts or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Up to this point, God's covenant with Israel required only Israel's faith. Faith that will that he will fulfill his promise. But the covenant requires more here. And they need to be consecrated. Consecrated so that they can worship God. Consecrated so that they can come before God. Into God's presence. God is going to meet with Israel. But they've got to be clean. They've got to be made holy. Earlier on this mountain. If you remember when Moses saw the burning bush. And he goes up to the burning bush. And, and the Lord says Moses stop. Take off your sandals. For the place you are standing. Is holy ground. Do not come near. And that is the same admonition that he is giving Israel here now. 
Be careful they don't come too near. Be careful. The place where they will be standing is holy ground. So consecrate them. Clean them. There, this gives us a glimpse of God's holiness. His otherness and the necessity of distance from him. And the warning in 19, 12 and 13 sets a frightening tone. If they come near the mountain, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. They, you will stone him or you will shoot him with arrows, but he will, she will die if they come near. That is the seriousness of God's holiness and the reality of mankind's sinfulness. And so consecration must take place. You know, in the Old Testament, there are serious consequences if anyone attempts to go near God's presence without first being cleansed, without a sacrifice, without the shedding of blood. Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah all died because they offered and came near to God when they weren't supposed to. And this chapter graphically illustrates the gulf that exists between a holy God and and a sinful people. But brothers and sisters, we also see from Genesis to Revelation, God in his love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace, making a way for his people to enter into his presence. And for us, that way is through Jesus Christ. Now, Israel, having been redeemed from slavery, having been ransomed from death by God at the Passover, he invites them into his presence to honor him, to worship him, to obey him, to follow him as their sovereign Lord. They are, they enter in. The consecration is just another shadow of what's to come in Christ. Rather than to have to cleanse ourselves each time as Israel did with the tabernacle and the temple. When, when sacrifices, the bleeding of sheep and, and lambs were, were put to death again and again. And blood was shed again and again in our, in our time. All it was one sacrifice. Rather than have to cleanse ourselves to come near God, we... We are holy in Christ. We are new creations and the old has passed away. No sacrifice is needed anymore because the ultimate sacrifice has taken place. Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear for us exactly what Christ has done. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, speaking of Christ, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Christ has done that. God's covenant, God's worthiness. And what is it that makes this time at Mount Sinai so important? God's holiness, God's glory, God's glory. God displays his glory. Israel has been warned, don't go near the mountain lest you die. Now they're being called to the foot of the mountain. They witness God in all his glory and Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Who's 
blowing that trumpet so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Again, there's that warning. Don't look on the Lord. Don't, don't, you can't view God in all his holiness and live. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses again went down to the people and told them. After three days of preparation, God calls Israel to the mountain. And that's what happens. It is, it is a show that no one would ever forget. They arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses has been mediating back and forth. And it, do you remember the movie, The Wizard of Oz? Dorothy walks into the great hall and you hear, I am the great and terrible Oz. And you hear thunder and loud noises and smoke is rising up and light is flashing. That's kind of what it feels like here. But not like the Wizard of Oz. And as Israel comes, they realize this is not good. God, there's, this is more than I expected. In fact, look over in chapter 20 and verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They discovered that God is not safe. If you remember in this wonderful story, the Chronicles of Narnia, Three children, the the three children are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, the lion. And and says, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's Israel's experience. He isn't safe but he's good and he's the king thunder 
lightning. Now, listen, you've got over a million people sidling up to this mountain where smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and trembling. And as they draw near here, here they're drawing near literally to the pulpit of God to hear God speak. And the mountain begins to shake. No wonder they said, Listen, you just talk to God, Moses. We're going back to the camp. Just come and tell us what he said. At this moment, they discover who God is. They meet God in all his glory. They meet God in all his holiness. They meet God in all his fullness. This is who has made a covenant with them. This is who has said, you are called to be my worshipers. I have made myself known to you. And now you are here that I can make myself known to the world through you. That's what's happening on this mountain at this moment. But they are afraid. When my grandson was four years old, my son took him to his first fireworks, July 4th fireworks display. And it was so loud and so just bright. Sam just went running. He ran as fast and as far as he could. And so David eventually ended up buying him some earphones that he could put over his head. So Sam calls them his defenders. He's defended from the noise. And that's what Israel is asking for here with Moses. You need to be my defender because we will not go up to this mountain. We have met this God and we are, we are just terrified. Seeing God's glory has undone these people as it did to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. But what's our takeaway from this story of this amazing story of God's glory and God's worthiness and God's wonderful covenant with the people of God? Because this all happens right before God gives the law. I would just say this is this is not a story of God just puffing himself up and making himself strong. This is a story of God revealing his grace to people. Before he gives the law. That God has invited the people of God to hear him speak. He's invited the people of God to draw near. Grace precedes the law. But he's also made it known that he is not to be trifled with. That we are never, they are never to take sin casually. If the people of God here are to have ongoing fellowship with God, their obedience to his covenant laws are paramount. Sin can't be treated casually because if they treat sin casually, they will treat God casually. If they treat his holiness lightly, they will treat his commandments lightly. And so the holiness of God is, is not to ever be taken casually. Even today, when we come in here on a Sunday morning, we just... This is the place we believe God is dwelling among us corporately. We don't come in here casually. We come in here reverently. 
looking to hear God speak to us and speaking back to God in worship. Listen, from Genesis onward, God's plan has always been working towards this moment where Christ has made a way for us beyond what the people of God experience here. Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't arrive. He didn't arrive in fire and thunder and smoke and lightning and clouds and trumpets. There weren't angels blowing trumpets when Christ was born like they are here in Exodus 19. Incessant trumpets. It just don't go away. No wonder the people ran from the mountain. The trumpets just don't stop. But he came down as one of us to bring to fulfillment God's covenant. A covenant that Israel could not keep. Listen, anyone who touched God's mountain died. But Jesus touched humanity so we could live. Now that we've come to faith in Christ, not only do we see in Christ God's glory, we share in that glory. And one day we will be taken up to glory. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years trying to reach a physical promised land. What they didn't realize was that their personal promised land didn't start with a physical place, but a spiritual and a relational one. They had reached the promised land here in 19 when God expands this covenant, deepens this covenant with them. They enter into relationship with him. He comes down to the top of them. He comes down to men and he speaks to them. The physical promised land will come, but it will come with many challenges and bumps and obstacles along the way and, and painful experiences. And until they enter the promised land, they do know this. God will be present with them. In Christ, we have entered the promised land. Because we've experienced eternal life in him now by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. But like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, we've yet to reach the celestial city. We're still on the path. And we too must continue in our exodus in this world with the trials and bumps and obstacles and painful challenges, confident that Christ is always with us, who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, or, lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. But like Israel, we must fully obey God's commands. Brothers and sisters, each Sunday that we gather here, we do not stand at the foot of the mountain trembling in private prayer. Trembling. We, we, we stand before God, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we enter his throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. Christ has made a way. If our sins condemn us, 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, he forgives us. Grace precedes the law. Grace always precedes the law. And may, may God's grace... May God's grace be abundant upon you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do give us grace for mercy and help in time of need. Thank you, Father, that you are always with us even to the end of the age, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, now may we from this passage this morning be aware of how grand and glorious and worthy you are. And may we worship because of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.